better song to sing before we look at the book of Ruth, chapter 1. As you know, over the past several years, I'm not even sure at this point how many years uh, we've been doing what we've been doing, but uh, I endeavored some years ago to embark on this discipleship journey on Wednesday nights without really knowing what uh, would happen. Most um, Wednesday night services in most churches are just sort of a formality and you have a time of prayer requests and then uh, you have some little devotion and you move on. But for the last probably four years or so, I have spent probably thousands of hours preparing uh, Wednesday night studies. And what we have found is that it has been one of the most remarkable ways to uh, grow and disciple people um, in our fellowship. And I tell the folks that are uh, with us on Wednesday night that um, it's just one of the most encouraging things. I see this amazing growth in them, and God meets us there and works through it in such a mighty way. And part of the uh, challenge with that is that there's a lot of people that can't come on Wednesday nights. There's a lot of people that serve in other areas on Wednesday nights. We don't have the capacity to uh, put the sermons online, to reproduce the handouts, all those things. And so uh, we're going to uh, do what we've been doing on Wednesday nights, on Sunday nights, and hopefully we'll be able to broaden the impact of these studies at the same time. Uh, it opens up the opportunity for many people to meet in their discipleship groups while we're here. And so, again, I've said this several times over the last couple of Wednesdays, but if you're, if you're here tonight and you were here on Wednesday night and you find that uh, this duplication is not really for you, then I would implore you to please find an area to serve. My goodness, my poor wife needs help. And if you got two arms and you can hold a baby and rock in a rocking chair, you could be a blessing to somebody right now. Okay? We need help on Sunday nights. We need help on Wednesday nights. You could be working security. You could be, there's lots of things people could be doing. So please, uh, if you, as a small number of you that cross over from Wednesdays to Sunday nights, but if that's you and you are thinking to yourself, well, there's, you know, I'm just going to come to one or the other. Find a place to serve, please. Find a place to serve. Let's pray, and then we're going to study Ruth. Father, we want to thank you that, God, you are faithful forever. And, Lord, you are sovereign over us. And if there is a message in the book of Ruth, it is a message of your sovereignty that is beyond our understanding. And Lord, I know that your desire tonight is to help us to see what to do when we utterly and completely don't know what to do. When our circumstances have completely bewildered us and left us void of all human understanding. And Lord, we need you. And you're there. And you work oftentimes contrary to the ways in which we might think certainly the ways in which the world around us does. And Lord, many 
of my brothers and sisters here tonight, I'm sure will see uh, things in this study that will remind them of times when people around them, maybe even uh, people who claim the name of Jesus with all good intentions, but probably gave bad advice that made a lot of sense in the world, but it didn't make sense in your kingdom. So help us tonight to see we'll all face difficulty. We'll all walk through valleys. And we'll need to know these truths to help us in those times. So we ask your help now. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we are studying the book of Ruth. The reason we endeavor to do this is because I just finished a study on Judges. And so why Ruth? The best way to fully understand the book of Ruth is to first understand Judges, which represents the context of Ruth. You can't really... I mean, I preached through the book of Ruth exegetically. I think it was uh, three years ago. And if you want to go back and listen to those sermons, they're on the website. They will be helpful to you. But this will be completely different from that. We're looking at this gospel from a perspective of understanding uh, what is happening in the, in the time of the judges and looking specifically at the sovereignty of God in the book of Ruth. Judges is the darkest time uh, that is, is laid out in detail for us in the Scripture. You know, there we find times where God throws His hands up in the air in the book of Genesis and says, you know, there's so much men have become so evil on the earth that He's going you know, to deal with it and He calls Noah to build an ark. But He doesn't go into much detail other than to tell us about the Nephilim. So you can go and read about that. But in Judges, we get this detailed information that is just astonishingly wicked. It's, it's astonishingly uh, corrupt. And so one can't fully appreciate how good God is in Ruth without knowing how bad man is in Judges. That uh, it's, it's such a dichotomy that it really is instructive to look at Ruth in uh, this context and through this lens. Uh, this story, the story of Ruth, is not big, it's small, the characters are not amazing, but they're very ordinary. You see, Judges looks at, think of Judges as a look at an evil time in a macro sense. Ruth is in a micro sense. Judges is, is talking about nations and people groups and these big swings that are uh, happening. There are things going on amongst the uh, children of Israel in the book of Judges that you won't see anywhere else. Ruth is this little bitty microcosm within that context where you get to see a family that's living in this time, experiencing all the devastating things that this time is bringing and how they maneuver and live in that. It's like a little microcosm. Uh, one small family, one young non-Israelite widow serving as a light of hope in all the darkness of Judges, a foreshadow of the one to come. She is a foreshadow of one to come. This, this Ruth, the most unlikely. It is, I think one of the things that just astonishes me about this study is I just think of how unlikely it is 
that there is a book in the Bible called Ruth. That to me is just amazing. It's, it just so blesses my heart that we serve a God who loves the most unlikely people and uses the most uh, just overlooked and marginalized in society to do amazing things. It is truly a blessing to think about that. Now there are two central themes that you're going to see in the book of Ruth. Number one is that when everything appears hopeless, God is faithful. That any family living in this time, in the time of judges, is going to uh, face great difficulty and even uh, come up against what seems to be hopeless. And uh, certainly Ruth and her family do. The second thing is that God is sovereign and He is good. And one of the things that I am continually uh, repeating over and over and bringing into our uh, studies is the reality that if you know nothing else if, but the fact that God is sovereign and He is good, you have the basic understanding that can carry you through any circumstance or situation that you might face in this world. Now, this is a, it's a story of those of us who have, are, and will suffer tragedy, loss, and pain. There is tragic circumstances there are it's hard we'll do the best we can tonight to look at these words and to really allow them to to resonate in our hearts Um, it's so easy to read a book like Ruth and to miss the the gravity of what the the book is telling us the pain and to try to think with empathy about what these people are facing And so I'll do the best I can to paint the most vivid picture possible for you to really walk away with a good understanding. It's a story for those wondering where is God amid unyielding heartbreak. Now we're not talking about heartbreak, uh, some heartbreaking situation that we may face. Though that is uh, common to all believers and certainly you and me will have and will continue to face heartbreaking situations. That's not what Ruth is talking about. The book of Ruth is dealing with continual heartbreak. This is heartbreak that just continues to prolong. This is the, the, the equivalent that I uh, give to this would be, this is the person that you love deeply that continually wounds you over and over and over. And yet you love them and they they crush you, and you love them, and they crush you. That's what the kind, this is the kind of heartbreak that Ruth is. It just compounds and compounds, and when you think it can't get any worse, it does. It's a story for those who will doubt whether God is in control, whether God is good, and whether doing what is right is worth it in hard times. If we're honest tonight, I mean, if you can read that and say to yourself, well, that's not me, I would never do that. Well, that's probably not being honest. Because the fact is, is that you and I can be pushed to places that we begin to question things. There is a degree of suffering. There is a level of heartbreak. There is pain that you and I can feel. There's a threshold somewhere to where we begin to wonder, God, How can you be in control and things be going this bad? How, Lord, can can 
if you are in control, can uh, you be good and this be so painful? And then we begin to ask ourselves, because in the midst of, of real unyielding heartbreak, the question becomes, it's always exponentially more difficult to be obedient to Christ in those times of great heartbreak. Listen, it's, it's in some ways always challenging. But when times are good and, and everyone's happy and, and it seems like you know, God's just answering all your prayers and working in your life, I mean, let's face it. Those aren't the times that it's, it's excruciatingly difficult to follow Christ. It's when, it's when your heart is so past broken. Your circumstances and your situation are so beyond your understanding. There's no capacity to think and understand. How can this work out for good? It can't. It simply cannot work out for good. There's no way that what I am feeling right now can ever work out for anything to make it worth it. That's the situation that Ruth finds herself in. So we're going to look. It's a story for people who are going to question whether all things, including suffering, are in fact purposed for good. Now, I chose the word purposed very succinctly. I wanted you to uh, think about that for a moment before we, as we move through this, I'll uh, break that down and make more sense of it. But are all things, including suffering, purposed for good? I wonder if we took a poll right now. How divided we might be on this topic. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem of Judah went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites, they were from Ephraim of Bethlehem of Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and they remained there. And then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. So we're introduced in these first three verses to the family. Now, uh, Judges sort of leaves you at the end of Judges with the two most shocking Uh, stories in Judges are the final two stories of the book. And both of those stories are about Ephraim. And both of those stories are uh, happened chronologically before the events of Judges chapter 1. Now, if that confuses you a little bit, um, it's not meant to. It's sort of what the book of Judges is, is it, it tells you how horrible all of these things were And then when you get to the very end of the book, the last four chapters give you two horrible stories that explain to you how all of this came about. Because if you read those two first, you would would just think to yourself, well, wait a minute, what happened? So first you have to see what happened, then you get the explanation of how it happened. 
Now, I know nothing about this, but it's got to be something like Star Wars because I'm so confused about Star Wars, I don't even know what's going on anymore. I mean, the last time I checked, you just tell a story. Come on, give me the thing in the order that it happened. We're all over the map. And so uh, I think I've only seen the first one, so don't ask me any questions. I don't know anything about anything, but I do know just from simply hearing things that they're all out of order and you have to be a fanatic to even know what's going on. Well, sometimes that can be helpful. Sometimes that's just for sheer uh, confusion's sake. But I think the Scripture gives us that to be helpful. Now, Moab is very important. What, who are the people of Moab and where did they come from? Moab, the Moabites, are people who are descendants of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Now, in Genesis 19, Lot, who's the nephew of Abraham... Um, there's a Lot is the one who was at Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife got turned into a pillar of salt. And it's a very exciting story. If you're not familiar with it, you ought to read it. Uh, but go to Genesis 19. But it ends up with this very terrible scenario where Lot is in a cave, drunk with his two daughters, and things get out of control. And there are these people born, the Moabites. And God has a problem with the Moabites. And he's been very specific about how the children of Israel are to uh, interact with the Moabites. Now let me give you an example of what we're looking at. Now you see Ephraim over here on uh, your left side. Up above the, the Dead Sea, up at the top by the red you see up there, that's the Sea of Galilee. Then down below, that's the, right here, that's the Dead Sea. And so this is a mountainous region of Ephraim. Now, for example, Jericho is right up here at the top of the Dead Sea. And so if you remember the battle at Jericho, Jericho is up in the mountains. It's very fortified. It's almost impossible to get to. And so that's a very mountainous region. So we're talking about uh, Elimelech taking his uh, family on this. See, if you just go as the crow flies to Moab, it's not that far. I mean, obviously, they're not getting in their uh, Escalade and driving there. They're huffing it on foot or maybe with a donkey. But they have to go all the way around the Dead Sea, all the way up north over those through that mountainous region down through Reuben to Moab. So it's a very difficult journey to get there. Now, names are important in Scripture. And certainly the names that we have, Moab is important, and the names of the people we've been introduced to. We've got four people, and we need to know their names. So let's go through those names. Number one, Elimelech. His name means, my God is king. His wife, Naomi, means God is pleasant. And so we have this man, my, name is, uh, my God is king, who's married to God is pleasant. And so clearly, these two came together, um, you know, having been named by their parents, having, you can sort of come to some uh, conclusions about the way they were raised, the background that they had. They come together, they're married, and then they begin to live in a time of famine. And in this time of famine, there are two sons born to them, and their first son, Malon, means sickly. And their second son, Chilion, his name means dying. 
Now the way, you don't name your two sons sickly and dying unless um, they're born in an excruciatingly difficult season of life. Would you not agree? And so uh, I, I he's, yeah, he's not in here tonight either, so... So four years ago, or three years ago, when I preached through Ruth on a Sunday morning, I'll never forget this, I made the comment that this is why you've never known anybody named Malon or Chilion. And after the service, somebody walked up and said, I actually have someone in my family who has that name. And I thought, how is that possible? But they do. So there is, there, there's probably... A, uh, a Chilion walking around, and there's certainly a Malon walking around. So their sons are sickly and dying. Now the names of the boys come through. Oh, here we go. There. They come through. There. The conditions in which he lived. So they were born in the middle of a terrible famine. Now, in Scripture, famines always come about because of the judgment of God. Famines don't represent, well, there was just a, a bad nor'east, nor'easter, or there was bad weather, or there was a drought, or there was this, or there was that. Whenever you see a famine in Scripture, that's uh, judgment of God. God controls those things, and He uses famines in the Old Testament to draw our attention to that. Verse 4, so now we're introduced to these four. Now they, they, these, the boys, they took wives of the women of Moab. Now the name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. And then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the women survived uh, with their two sons and her husband. Now, again, if you're just reading that and you're just saying to yourself, well, you know, okay, so first her husband dies and then her two sons die. But you have to really stop and realize uh, the, 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 the suffering that they've been through. These boys have been born. It's in terrible famine. They pack up their family. They have to make this excruciating trip to Moab. Uh, Elimelech is determined that he's going to lead his family to somewhere where there's food or to, to some better existence. And so they finally get there. They're in a foreign land. They're completely out of their element. They don't know anybody. It's, uh, it's not necessarily safe. It's certainly awkward. She doesn't have any family members or anything there. And now her two boys have died. And so basically it's a death sentence. It's the worst possible scenario that you could be in. Because it is an utterly male-dominated culture. And you have three widows who are utterly and completely helpless. They're absolutely in every way helpless. Now, we learn some things about these boys. First of all, that they break God's covenant and they marry pagan women from Moab. Now, we don't know a lot, but we can, we can, uh, we can surmise that these boys grew up in a, a Christian family. I mean, they grew up with a dad who was named My God is King and a mom whose name is God is Pleasant. And they, they spent some time growing up uh, in Bethlehem in Israel and they no doubt went and worshipped at the temple and were exposed to all of the things that a, a, a child of God would be exposed to. And then they moved over to Moab and they slowly just began to uh, embrace the culture. And so they break the covenant 
and they marry pagan women. Now, one is named Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah, which means gazelle. And we will see that she is a runner. The other is named Ruth, and her name means friendship. And we will see that she is a keeper. Verse 6 says, Then she arose, that being Naomi, with her two daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Now understand something. It makes it sound like, well, you know, they're going to walk, you know, down the street. I mean, this is three ladies about to embark on a very, very difficult journey, a very long way. This is not something you would take lightly. Verse 8, Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord might deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the, uh, the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you might find rest each in the house of her husband. Uh, for she kissed them and, she lifted up their, and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that, you might, that they might be your husbands? No, turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No. My daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so Naomi begins to implore her daughter-in-laws to go home. You see, they're Moabites. They can go home and they have moms and dads and, and, and uncles and nieces and nephews and people who can care for them and people who can watch over them and Naomi suggested them to turn back. It represents the sensible thing to do. In human terms, very few people, if anyone, in this moment would say to you anything other than you need to go back to Moab. The last thing you need to do is follow your mother-in-law on this journey. That makes absolutely no sense. Naomi has absolutely nothing to offer. She has nothing to offer. She even tells them, listen, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. He, his hand has rose up against me. I'm, I don't have anything. I don't have a husband. You don't have a husband. You're young. I'm old. I can't bear children. I can't make up for the loss of my son. She's saying, it's over for me. I'm done. I mean, my usefulness on this earth is finished. You, on the other hand, you have hope. You can, you can go home. You can go back to the, the, the people that you left and the things that you left. And you can return and, and, and possibly, you know, live some sense of life. Verse 14. 
So the girls, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. It's a great mother-in-law verse, isn't it? When your mother-in-law is highly ticked, she just stops speaking to you. It means you got a problem. So I imagine Naomi just turns around and starts walking, still in hopes that Ruth would change her mind. And she would realize to herself, this is insanity. Why why would anyone follow you? What what would you do this for? What rationale could you possibly have? Now, When we get to this point in the story, I think what's important to understand and what's oftentimes missed, and a lot of times, you know, what Ruth says to Naomi is something that uh, we we might read at a wedding or, or, you know, they're, they're, they're very beautiful words and they're very compelling words, but they're words that come out of deep suffering. I mean, these people are at a low low, low point. When Elimelech died, it was disastrous. When uh, Malon and Chilion died, it was absolutely over. Uh, Before Elimelech died, it was already suffering. Uh, Life was hard. When when Naomi finds out that there's uh, food in Israel, and that, that, that God has released the famine. She's working in the field when she finds that out. I mean, it is a tough, tough life. And it has gotten just beyond comprehension. And so I think what we need to see here is that the best teacher about hope is suffering. You see, how can you know anything about hope that's really meaningful unless you've been to the place where it was all you had. You see, I don't really want to have a conversation with somebody about hope. I don't want somebody to teach me about hope or to talk to me about hope who has never been to the place where that's all they have because they don't really know what hope is. Hope is something that has to be experienced. Hope is something that you could know all of the technical terminology about. But you really don't know what hope is until you're somewhere where all you have is hope. Suffering is the classroom of hope. But not only that, think about what suffering does to relationships. Do you know the people in my life and the people in your life that you have the closest unbreakable bond with? I don't know their names. I don't need to know their names. I know certain things about them. 
All of the people that I have the closest unbreakable bond with are people that I have suffered with. When you suffer with someone, it grows you close in a way that nothing else can. Nothing. See, some of you maybe have friendships with someone and you've walked through very dark times together and you're, you're just bonded together. And so you, you don't have one of those awkward relationships where you feel like you have to say the right thing or, you know, pick up the phone or do this or do that or they're going to get their feelings hurt or all that. that. That's a shallow, lame relationship. I'm talking about the kind of relationship that you, you could go a year and not talk to them and the minute you see each other, you pick right back up where you left off and you know that you're just as close as you've ever been and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you haven't talked to them in a year or two years, you, in the midst of a crisis, they're who you think of and you know when you call them, they're there. Suffering. What's, what's happening between Ruth and Naomi is from suffering. Now listen, it, it doesn't happen between everybody. How do we know that? Because look at what happened with Orpah. She left. So you see, not everyone responds. To some, sometimes things go on and they get so hard and then people just get tired and so they just kind of flee emotionally from it. But when you hang together through suffering, it builds a bond that is literally unbreakable. So the question tonight is not if suffering will occur, but when? But when? And then how will we respond? How will you and I respond when suffering comes? You know, I think to myself, uh, these questions we're going to ask, they're questions that if you are, uh, you know, I'm looking at all these young people over here who... You know, they, they, they think of these things and they think, well, for the most part, you know, that's, that's not going to happen to me. That's not something that I would think about. It's not something that as a, a, a typical young person in the United States that I would face. But how valuable it would be to seriously consider in your heart how you might answer some of these questions. The first one is, will I believe God in this situation that I cannot control. When you are utterly out of control, when there's no control in the situation. The control is, uh, you see, for, for many of us, we thrive on, uh, you know, we don't have to know necessarily that everything's going to be okay, but what we need to know is we need to know that, uh, you know, we have some understanding of what's around the next corner. We have some feeling of control. But, but life sometimes deals with situations. You know, when you, when you walk into a hospital room and you... Uh, this is oftentimes why men are so absolutely horrible in the hospital. is because laying in a hospital bed, all of your, uh, all of your, your integrity, your, your decency, your modesty is out the window. You're laying there. You're completely helpless. You have strangers just attending to you. You, you, can't, you have no control over anything. And it's just absolutely maddening. And it's fearful. And, and, and you don't know what's going on. And when people are talking to you, you don't really understand. And you're just at their mercy. And it's, it's very, very difficult. Are you going to believe God in that situation? 
when you can't control it? Will I trust Him even if He doesn't take me out of it? You see, first you find yourself in that situation, and it's terrible, and you're, you're struggling in it, and you're, but then it begins to linger on, and, we, and, and we, we start to ask questions like, well, God, I've been asking you, I've been praying about this, I've been pleading with you, and you start to think, well, am I praying the right prayers, or am I, is there a reason God's not answering me, or is it this, or is it that? And it just keeps going on and going on and going on, and it doesn't seem to end. And he doesn't get you out of it. And you're just there. What are you going to do? When it seems like God is not listening to anything you're saying. Will I run away? Most people run away. The most common response to enduring suffering... To a God that seems distant, aloof, and unconcerned about the things that we're facing. Is to run. These are the multitudes of people that are working where you work. Going to school where you go to school. That you talk to them. That in, a, in some form or fashion. When you begin to talk to them about church or the Lord. or They say, you know, well, I used to do that, but it didn't work. It didn't work. Will I follow him further into the storm? You know, the questions get harder. Are you going to follow him further into the storm? Are you going to walk further into the storm? Are you going to... Because here's the thing. If he doesn't take you out of it, and you don't run away, then what's going to happen? You're going to go further into it. Now that's way easier said than done. So what will I trust in more? The unchanging nature of God or the ever-changing nature of my situation? You see... The common uh, value of most modern Christianity is, is that you base, you base your relationship with God on your situation or your circumstances. And so the way that you see uh, your relationship with God, your walk with God, is through the lens of your circumstances. It is absolutely unbiblical, devastating, and guaranteed to blow up in your face every time. Every single time. So what I want us to do now is I want us to take that and I want us to now look at these four individuals that we've been introduced to. And I want us to examine the way that they respond to suffering. I want us to think honestly about where we would fit into this, who would we be most like, who do we have a tendency to uh, be like in our own lives, and see the sovereignty of God at work in each of these examples. So first of all, we're going to look at Elimelech. Elimelech. So when hardship comes, he tries to control. He tries to control his suffering by avoiding it altogether. See, here's what he does. Elimelech 
finds himself in a famine. Now, I don't know this for sure, but certainly Elimelech at least partially recognizes that the famine that Israel is in is the judgment of God against Israel. Now, we could give him the benefit of the doubt and we could say that he knew that, but he thought to himself, well, it's because of all these unfaithful people that are acting like pagans around me and I'm faithful and so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Either way, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. Because even if he said, I'm being faithful to God and this famine has come as judgment on God's people, but I'm being faithful so I shouldn't have to suffer through it. If he's being faithful, he ought to know enough about God that God's going to be faithful to him in the midst of the famine. Amen? But he doesn't do that. He packs up his wife. He packs up his kids, and he starts heading on this journey to Moab. Now, here's the problem with this whole scenario. is because nine out of ten times, any modern-day Elimelech is going uh, to be just a hero in everybody's eyes. Because he's the father that took initiative to protect his family. That he's the leader He's this John Wayne character that said, no, we're going to buck up and we're going we're to strap all our stuff on a donkey and we're going to head on this journey. I'm going to take my family to where there's food. Doesn't that sound great? That is totally unbiblical. Totally unbiblical. Listen, he packs his people up and takes his family into a land of people that God has said over and over and over, listen, you need to stay away from Moab. You need to leave the Moabites alone. And because there's food there, he takes his family there. And when he gets there, he doesn't find that he finds what everybody finds when they think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, right? It's not so good. You see, he is in control. He's leaning upon himself, his own ingenuity, his own ability to come up with a plan. He's not the guy that you want to be uh, following in a spiritual storm. He may be the guy that you want to be behind in a, in a, a building on fire. He may be the guy that you want to be, uh, you know, living next door when uh, a hurricane is in the gulf and bearing down on us. But he's not the guy you want any spiritual wisdom from. No. You see, he puts his hope in himself and all of his own wisdom and ability to get himself out of the situation. It's all about him and his ability and his wisdom. I'm going to fix the problem myself. That is a disaster. Oftentimes when I'm talking to people who are in very difficult situations and they're telling me sort of what their plan is. Like, for example, there's you know some of you in the room... Uh, go with me to the home of grace and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I just cannot stress enough. Here's a group of men that are, have found themselves in this rehab facility. And so think of all the disasters that led them to the place that they are, right? And so then they get there and they learn all this wonderful information about God. And they're equipped with all these amazing, uh, you know, uh, uh, just techniques in order to 
avoid temptation and ways to, to, to structure themselves and all this great stuff. And then you know what? As they get near graduation, they'll tell me, I'll say, so, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I, I might set them up a little bit. And I'll say to them, I'll say, so, you know, what week are you in? And, you know, it's a 12-week program. And so they'll say, oh, I'm in 10 or 11 or 12. And I'll say, well, so what happens after you graduate? And then they'll start telling me. They'll tell me all the things. They'll tell me where they're going to go, where they're going to live, what they're going to do, where they're going to work, where they're going to. And I just listen to them. And then I look at them and say, if the Lord wills, you'll do this or you'll do that. Who do you think you are? You're the moron that got yourself in this situation and now you're going to trust your plan when you leave here? Who told you to do all that? How do you know that's where you're supposed to go and where you're supposed to work and what you're supposed to do? You see, but it sounds sensible, like you need to leave with a big plan. But to me, it sounds like suicide. I don't want a plan. I want a word from God. I, want, so I like it when somebody looks me in the eye and I go, so what are you going to do when you get out of here? And you go, and they look me dead in the eye and they say, whatever God tells me. That's what I want to hear. I want somebody to say, I am dependent on God. I'm listening to him. I want them to say, listen, pastor, uh, God spoke to me and this is what he told me and this is what I'm, but, but don't give me all your plans, Elimelech. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Bunch of man-centered garbage. This is what he does. He abandons his name. He rejects the very name that he bears, that his God is king. He packs up his family. He doesn't pray. There's not one prayer he prays. He just loads his family up and goes to Moab. He doesn't repent of his sin. I mean, imagine... Your name is my God is king. Like, hey, how are you? You know, what's your name? My God is king. Well, you know, that's pretty telling. You're going to pack your family up and you're going to take them on this journey to this foreign land. You don't pray. You don't repent. You just go. I mean, come on. He doesn't ask one wise person for counsel. Nobody. He just goes. Disaster. You know, so many times, I think Elimelech serves as such a great uh, teacher for, for us as men to to realize that so many times we take so much pressure on ourselves and we feel all this, which it is pressure. It's pressure to lead a family. It's pressure to be the priest of your home. It's pressure to love your wife as Christ loved the church. I mean, those, are, those, are, those come with a lot of pressure. But is it really pressure? Or, or do we serve a God that if we pray and seek His face and if we repent of our sin, if we seek godly counsel, is He, is he going to ignore that or is He going to speak to us through that? I mean, He's there for us. The problem is, is we don't seek Him. We just take it upon ourselves and say, well, i got to do something. You know, you seek first. Seek first God. Seek his righteousness. All right, 
Elimelech is his own sovereign. He does what's right in his own eyes. It's the theme of the book of Judges. He's doing what everyone else around him is doing. Doing what's right in their own eyes. He is his own sovereign. Does he believe that God doesn't exist? No. Has he abandoned God altogether? No. If you met him and talked to him, would you still believe he was a follower of God? Yes. But he's acting as if he's God. And it's a disaster. Here's a principle for you. Faithlessness is not simply making ungodly decisions. It's making decisions without God. You see, we tend to think of faithlessness as doing, making decisions that are clearly ungodly, that are clearly immoral. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It is a faithless move to... to to claim the, the, the sovereign Yahweh God of the Bible and to load your family up and move to Moab? Now listen, you think that's far-fetched? You think that's out of the realm of our possibility? How many people do you think in our fellowship in the last 15 years, how many men have accepted a job, loaded up their family, and moved them somewhere? without seeking the face of God, without repenting of their sin, without asking for wise counsel. Because listen, you say to yourself, oh, well, well, hold on now. I'm not done painting my little rosy picture. I'm talking about when the job offer comes in and you're going to make twice the money you make now and your wife's going to be able to stay home and take care of the kids and everything you've ever wanted is on a silver platter. What's there to pray about? I, I hear it all the time. Well, it's the blessing of God. Are you sure it is? Are you sure? How do you know that? Oh, because it's good. Oh, really? Was there more food in Moab than there was in Israel? Yes, there was. So do you think there was justification for moving there? Clearly, no. Listen. And then how many, how many, boy, my mind races with people. I can see faces of families that I'm still in contact with. I get letters from families all the time that say, Pastor, we've been gone for five years. We've moved to Utah. We've moved to Arizona. We moved to, you know, uh, Tennessee. We moved here. We moved there. We never really found a church. We never really got involved. We're floundering around. Our marriage is on the rocks and we need your help. I haven't seen these people for five years. When they left, they were the happiest thing you've ever seen. Because man, it's, it's going to be great. Let me tell you something. I don't want to make any big decisions in my life until I seek the face of God. I want God to know that even if I don't know exactly what He wants me to do, I want to make sure that He knows that I am fully intending to honor Him. That I, if I'm doing the wrong thing, God, I don't want to be doing the wrong thing. I want Him to know you're in control, Lord, and I'm not doing anything without you. Oh, yeah. 
Faithlessness oftentimes comes in the form of making decisions that everyone around you thinks is awesome. But you didn't seek the face of God. And so that's your deal. That's you. That's on you. Number two, what about Orpah? Let's look at her. She runs from her suffering and she places her hope in false gods. See, she's the gazelle. She's the runner. So she realizes, you know, I guess at first she feels compelled. I mean, Ruth is going with Naomi, so she feels, well, she's kind of going along, but her heart's not in it. And she's already thinking like, you know, I'm not even going to make it to the, the, to the shore of the Dead Sea. I mean, I'm, i got to get out of this situation I'm in. And so she begins this process, and as soon as she gets a chance, she bails. And she's like, I'm going home to my people and my gods. That's exactly what Naomi told her. This is the epitome, the epitome of the modern mindset of believing whatever, whatever works for you. You see, the way that you determine something's true, the way that you determine that something's right is, does it work for you? Which is, again, I, I, I mean... I want you to know how common Orpahs are today. They're everywhere. Every church has a contingency of Orpahs who are following a God who will meet their felt needs. This is the essence of the, 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 the proliferation of the prosperity gospel. Think about this. The eventual breakdown of the prosperity gospel and every other false gospel is simply this. If you don't get the things that I want, then I will move on and believe in something else. You see, the prosperity gospel, its only lure is, the only way it can hold you is if you're getting the things that you want. Or at least if you think that you're, you're, you're keeping the things you don't want at bay. But as soon as trouble comes... I think Wednesday night I, I joked. I said, I would love, what I want to do is I want to read Joel Osteen's book when he files for bankruptcy. I can't, I want to read that book. I would love to know what he's going to say. Of course it's your best life now. I mean, come on. When, you're, when you have solid crystal doorknobs in your house and people are starving to death and you're naming the name of Christ... Of course you're having your best life now. I mean, come on. When your driver delivers you underneath in a secret tunnel into your uh, giant uh, um, arena and you get on your own personal elevator and go to your special place where no one can get around, well, of course it's your best life now. But what happens when cancer comes? What happens when your, your child goes AWOL? What happens when your wife dies? What happens when it all goes away? Then what happens? If everything's built on that. Listen, this is, this is the whole essence of the, the, the runners, the orpas. Man, they're good. They're the soil that the seed falls on and springs up with great zeal and joy. Until what? Man, I mean, they're growing. Man, they're flourishing. They look like they are the bomb until trouble comes. And where are they? Gone. They're orpas. They're everywhere. It's the opposite 
of Christianity. Christianity is where saved people follow Christ, not because life is easy, but because he's God. The Bible even tells you that if Jesus says, if you follow me, guess what? It's going to be hard. You're going to be persecuted. Jesus even says, if you're not being persecuted, you're not being faithful enough. Now, how is that my best life now? And all it does, it leads to gazelles, runners. They're here so long as it's good. But when it gets hard, they're gone. You know, I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking about those, you know, all these statistics. You know, I'm leery of statistics. You, you got to be careful. Make sure you're looking at good statistics. But some of them are very good and very accurate and very instructive. But I try to really look and see and make sure that we're dealing with good, good information. But all these statistics about young people who grow up in church and the percentage of them that when they go off to school, uh, they, they walk away from the faith and so on and so forth. And um, the more I think about it, the more I think that I think that a great uh, number of that, one of the big things that needs to be taken into account there is the Orpah syndrome. Did you see... Anybody can just be in the youth group when somebody else is paying your bills and everything's good and they buy your car and they pay your car insurance and they, you know, and there's, there's food in the fridge and there's presents under the tree and so on and so forth. But when suddenly it gets hard and suddenly, you know, things aren't just rolled out for you, you start thinking like, well, I don't know about this God thing. See, it's the Orpah complex. The runner. All right, Naomi. Let's look at Naomi. Now, we're going to pick up in verse 19 to look at Naomi. Now, the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, they, they went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened as they came to Bethlehem that the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, Naomi... She's different from the first two. Naomi is not like Elimelech. She isn't trying to control her suffering, nor is she like Orpah. She's not running from her suffering. She has a very different approach. She's sitting in the middle of it, allowing it to make her bitter. She is absorbing or embracing her suffering in a dysfunctional and unhealthy way. What she's doing with her suffering... Now, now think about this. Her husband... Just took control of the situation and just, you know, tried to, tried to avoid suffering altogether. Orpah just runs away from it. Naomi does neither of those. She clings to it and has this pity party. She has this, you know, Eeyore complex that everything's negative and bad. Well, it's just going to be bad today. Everything's going to be bad. You know how you know when somebody is really moving into a place of 
uh, a root of bitterness has really settled down deep within them. You see, early on, think about this. Some of you have struggled with bitterness, or some of you were raised in homes with a bitter person, or some of you might be married to somebody who's bitter, God forbid. But if that's the case, here's what you know about bitterness. Early on, a bitter person keeps their bitterness uh, to themselves. It just comes out like in, in lashes. You know, it, it, it manifests itself. You know, the mouth evidences what's in the heart. But, but once they really settle into being bitter, they start to just talk about it. You ever, you ever been somewhere, or been in a Sunday school class or a small group setting, and somebody just said, you know, they just say, I'm just bitter. Whew. When you get to the point where you're just openly talking about it, you are sure enough bitter. She arrives home. People are excited to see her. And the only thing she can manage to come out of her mouth is nothing but pure negativity. Now, I'm not going to call any names, but undoubtedly, we've all encountered the person who can never seem to say anything positive about anything. You see, that's what bitterness does. That's the, the root of it. It gets inside of you. You see, her bitterness... She, in the midst of it, now I want you to notice about, because it's so instructive what she says. She makes it clear that she believes God is real. Now she is absolutely bitter. But there's no question that she believes God is real. She also believes that God is in control. Look at what she says. She says, I left full, but I come back empty. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Then she says, don't call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has inflicted me. He's afflicted me. She understands the sovereignty of God, doesn't she? In her bitterness. She's like, God's in control. You see, you can be utterly bitter, but you can still have your theological underpinnings. She knows that God sometimes brings affliction. You know that? The psalmist says in Psalm 34, many of the afflictions of the righteous. It's right there in black and white. I mean, that's just a simple, there's a million places, but that's just a simple way for you to know. Yeah, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But how many people never get to, but the Lord delivers them out of them all? Orpham? Nope. Mm -mm. You see, when you run, when you cut and run, when you become your own sovereign, when you take matters into your own hands, you miss the opportunity to, to see the fullness of that truth. Now, Here's what Psalm 34, 19 and what Naomi says doesn't mean. It does not mean that God causes every bad thing that happens. Don't, 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 don't add this to your, uh, to your theological understanding because that's going to be a disaster. That doesn't mean that. Sometimes God does, sometimes God doesn't. But it does mean that God is king, that he reigns, and that he's in control of everything that happens, including bad things. That's what sovereignty means. 
Sovereignty is like sand passing through an hourglass and the hourglass being the hand of God and the sand representing all the events, large and small, that ever come across uh, your life. They all pass through the hand of God. There's a huge difference between saying they pass through the hand of God and saying that God allowed them and saying that God caused them. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of suffering. A lot of suffering that is sheerly the result of what? Human foolishness. God didn't cause that, did he? No. And let me tell you something. When you do something foolish and you suffer for that, what would be the wise thing for you to do? Say, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that when I act foolishly, it doesn't go well for me. Because I don't want to be a fool. And the only way I'm not going to be a fool is if when I'm foolish, it doesn't go well for me. Your love is protecting me from myself. Thank you for that. No one in their right mind, once they're grown, would look back and say, Do you know what I want? I wish I would have had parents that let me do anything that I wanted to do. Because trust me, if you do, come talk to me because I did. And it is not what you want at all. You know what you want? You want parents who love you enough. To make your stupidity hurt. That's what you want. That's what you want. You see. God is wise enough and powerful enough. And loving enough to work everything together. For his good purpose and our joy. You see. When a person. Is in this season of suffering. When this unyielding heartbreak is occurring in their life. And, 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 and we see it. We see it in this faith family. People who, who suffer, I mean really, really suffer. For long periods of time. In excruciating ways. You know what you should never do? Never, ever walk up to that person and say, you know, God promises that all things are going to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. You see, that might be okay when I'm facing a hardship. That might be okay when, when I'm a little bit down and I need to be picked up. But let me tell you something. When your life is falling apart to the degree that you are utterly just broken you hurt so bad that you can't even feel anymore you don't walk up to somebody who just lost their child and say oh you know what Romans 8 28 is true you don't do that you don't do that that's not helpful they need time you know what they need they need you to come and sit down next to them and put your arm around them and cry with them. That's what they need. That's what I need. That's what you need. We don't need any kind of trite explanations. I don't need you to try to explain things away from me. No, uh-uh. No, I just, need, I just need you to be with me and to hear me and to hurt with me and to care for me. And in time, in time, I'll be able to see God's work. But it takes time. 
Bitterness blinds us to truth, and it exaggerates our sense of hopelessness. You see, Naomi illustrates this so wonderfully for us. The Bible is so magnificent in its detail. That, that's what I love about the Scripture. There is, it's such a joy to study God's Word and to just think about the little nuances. All, all, I never study the Bible, and, and, and I don't come to a sentence and go, why is that there? Why did God tell me that? Why is that there? You notice at the very end of verse 22, the Scripture says, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let me tell you something. You know what Groucho Naomi, with all her bitterness, she, she finally gets home and she walks into Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, and it's barley harvest. It's like a giant buffet and there's food everywhere. And she's been starving in Moab for all this time and everything's been going bad. And she gets home and by the, by the providence of God, it's at the time when, you know, moon pies are just raining out of the sky. And all she can do is go, well, God's just dealt bitterly with me. You see, bitterness, it blinds you. It causes you to miss the goodness of God in the small things. You, you, don't think that, that, you don't think God worked that out? You don't think that that happened for a reason? Of course the Bible tells us that for a reason. She missed it. She missed it. But, but you're not missing it. I'm not missing it. Because it's instructing us about, you see how God is, I want you to know something. If you ever find yourself in a place where Naomi is, this is what I want you to remember. God still loves you, and He's still doing good things for you in the midst of your grumpy, bitter, rotten attitude. He still loves you. And He's still putting blessings before you. And even when you don't see Him and acknowledge Him, He still loves you. He's good. He's good. So, Naomi missed that. She, she was blind to the fact that the good Father brought her back home right at harvest. What a blessing. To walk in and it's golden corral right before her eyes. All right, let's talk about Ruth. And then we'll be done. Ruth. Well, Ruth, you need to understand she's, the, she's a non-Jew. She's an outsider. She's the one who will be, will be redeemed into the family of God. She is the least likely of all people to even be discussing to have a book of the Bible named after her, to be listed in the lineage of, uh, you know, to be in the line of David in the uh, um, Matthew chapter 1. I mean, it's just astonishing. <laughs> this, who is Ruth? I mean, we're in the dark, we're in the time of the judges. I mean, it's absolute chaos. I mean, this is... If, if God wouldn't have said what he said about a rainbow, son, I'd be, looking for a, I'd be looking for somebody to be building a boat about now. It's bad. And Ruth, of all people, the story of Ruth is the story of us. Don't you ever just sit here sometimes and think to yourself, wow, how did I, how did I get here? Sometimes I'm just driving down the road. I'm just driving down the road. And I just think, I just start praising God. And this may sound crazy to you. 
I just start praising God. I go, God, I'm driving down this smooth road. And I've had my back and my kidneys and my ribs beaten to shreds on every dirt road, off-road adventure in some foreign land, starving and hot and nasty. And I'm driving down this smooth road. And I got a Wendy's, right? I can just go right, I can just get me a Frosty right now. And I didn't do anything to deserve that. I got gas stations everywhere. I got debit card in my pocket. I'm just like, God, I don't deserve this. And then sometimes I just think, I open up the Bible and I read something and I just go, why am I, how, why am I saved? Why, why, why did you choose me? How did this happen? I'm like Ruth. You're like Ruth. You're the outsider. Listen, an Old Testament saint, if, if, if you, when you get to heaven and you want to start asking Elijah all these questions about all the things that he did or Moses or somebody, and you're going, what about this and what about that? They're going to say, forget that. How did you get here? What do you mean? Forget the Red Sea. You're here. Where did a Gentile come into this picture? If that's what's unbelievable... And we're just like, well, you know, I mean, listen, you got to realize it's crazy. Ruth experiences the same suffering, but she, she doesn't try to control it. She doesn't run from it, and she doesn't remain bitter. What she does is this incredible thing. She walks deeper into her suffering. She does the unthinkable. Every friend that Ruth has... Every advisor that she has, I guarantee you, is saying, you're an idiot, you're a moron, I wouldn't do that. I guarantee you. No one is telling Ruth, you know what you ought to do? You ought to go with Naomi. Nobody. That's what she does. She goes deeper into it. She recognizes how helpless she is. Her journey begins with zero guarantees. Oh, man, there's a, there's a sermon here, somewhere. Where'd it go? Hey, y'all aren't helpful. I was going the right way. I'm with it. No guarantees. Just like my little clicker. There's no guarantees. Are you the kind of person that before you walk out on a plank of faith, you, you got to have some kind of assurance. You got to have some assurance about something before you. Is that really walking by faith and not by sight? I'm just going to give you my opinion here. Do you know why I think that so many people never see the true greatness and the potential of God in their lives? It's because they, they refuse to walk with no guarantees. I think greatness comes to those who are willing to trust God. With, she has no, I mean, no guarantees 
None. And she goes. But she was married to an Israelite. You see, her only expectation, her only expectation is to worship Yahweh and that she will die. I mean, she said, she told Naomi exactly what she thought. She said, well, I'm going to go there and your God's going to be my God. I'm going to worship your God and then together we're going to die. That's her, she has no guarantees and that's her expectation. Her expectation is we're going to go there and build a better life. We're going to go there and arrive at barley harvest time. We're going to go there and build a big house and live happily ever after. We're going to go there. None of those things. No human expect. None of that. All she says, I'm going to worship Yahweh and I'm going to die and be buried right there. Man, that's an amazing lady. No husband, no family, no job, no hope. But she believes the God of the Bible is the God of the universe. And so she goes. So with that little hope, the little hope that she has, we see that she faithfully walks towards God and His people by faith and not by sight. She goes. She goes. All right. Let's conclude. Here's some things to take away. You look at these four people and how they respond to their suffering. I think it's true that if there's breath, if there's breath, there's hope in this life. If your lungs are filling with air, if your heart is beating, no matter how bad it may seem, no matter how many mistakes it's taken to get there, no matter how hopeless the circumstances may be, no matter how how, uh, uh, pathetic all human wisdom is, no matter what, if there's breath and you're still alive, there's hope now. Once you die, you either are or you aren't. It's over. But if there's breath, if there's breath, there's hope. God is a God of providence. He's not abandoned this broken world. But He works within the ashes of creation to create beauty. Everything that God, I mean... I can't even, there, I don't even have words in my vocabulary to describe to you how far we've come from the Garden of Eden to this moment in time in history. It is such a disaster, it's unbelievable. And has God given up? Has He thrown in the towel? Is he, he's still working mightily in little ways, in big ways. He's working in the lives of this little family. God is king. He's a king. He reigns in all the affairs of men, big and small, nations and families. He's sovereign. Naomi never doubted that God was who he says he is, that he was involved in every aspect of her life. She didn't understand She didn't know how. She couldn't see. See, it's one thing to know that God is sovereign. It's another thing to also know that He is good. And when you only have half of the equation, it's going to be problematic. But while a believer and an unbeliever can face the same tragedies, and often do, through faith in Christ, 
they should never experience the same uh, them experience them very different they should always be very different in their experience you know we should never grieve as those who don't have hope we should never uh, the funeral of a saved person should never look like the funeral of a lost person we should never face adversity like people who don't know Christ all right a few things to remember five simple things to remember as we walk away from this study number one don't try to control or avoid suffering as uh as irrational as that may sound, as opposite to everything that you've ever embraced or believed as that may sound, I'm telling you that Ruth is teaching us, listen, don't try to control or avoid suffering. What you want to do is try to avoid doing stupid things that cause suffering. But when suffering comes upon you and you have no control over it, Start asking, God, what do you want me to see in this? What do you want me to know in this? What do you want me to learn in this? God, what, how am I going to grow closer? How am I going to be more like you? Through? I mean, listen, just walk into it. There's nothing you can do. Don't run away. Don't try to avoid it. Number two, don't run from it and begin to hope in false gods and other saviors. Don't let suffering cause you to flee and try to find some salvation in some other thing. Don't, let, don't, don't fall for the, the enemy's favorite trick that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. It's always greener. Don't run and place your hope in false things. People, situations, circumstances. Don't sit and be bitter hoping in nothing. If your suffering is causing you to be bitter, there's a problem with the way that you're uh, viewing your suffering. There's a, there's a problem with the way that you're uh, responding. Now, I want to be very clear about this. There's nothing wrong with being angry. There's nothing wrong with being frustrated. There's nothing wrong with being brutally honest with God. There's nothing wrong with you at the end of your rope having a Habakkuk moment. You ever read Habakkuk? You want to you know what it's like when somebody's had all they can take and they get real with God? Read Habakkuk. The guy unleashes. God can take that. As long as it's sincere from your heart. As long as you're... Listen, God can take that. Don't be disrespectful. Don't be blasphemous. But you, listen, you can be frustrated and angry and confused. But don't be bitter. Don't be bitter. And here's what you do. Do press into the suffering. Walk towards God and His people. When suffering comes and you're hurting and you're broken and you don't understand, walk towards God. Walk towards His people. The tendency is going to be to, to, it's going to, be to move yourself away and going to be to retreat. I mean, listen, have you ever asked yourself, what is it with us? Why are we so dense? How come when things get bad... Somebody, you don't see somebody for three or four weeks, and then you finally track them down. You go over to your, their house, and you go, man, where have you been? You haven't been to Sunday school in three weeks. And they go, I'm just having a terrible time. And you're going, like, hello? On what planet is you, what, did you come to the conclusion that now that you're having a terrible time, what you need to do is, is get away from God's people, get away from the things of the Lord? No, you need to run to them. That's the whole point, right? 
But why don't we want to do that? Because it's against our flesh. Why? Because what happens when, you, when you're hurting and you get around people who genuinely love you, what are they going to do? They're going to annoy you. Because they love you. Right? Does anybody in here have a mom? Okay. What do moms do? Are you okay? What happened? Where does it hurt? How can I help you? They love you, so they ask questions. You see, when you go to work and you're broken, no one cares. When you come to church and you're broken, we go, where have you been? We missed you. What's wrong? And you go, well, I don't want to talk about it. Well, I don't really care. I love you, and I want to know what's wrong. You see? But what we do is we run away, which is exactly what Satan wants you to do. Don't do that. Walk towards God and His people. And then lastly, do avoid focusing on the how. Please avoid focusing on the how and trust in the who. Do not get consumed with the how. Every single sermon or lesson or study on the sovereignty of God, somewhere in it, has got to boil down to we don't have any business in the how We're not welcome in the how. The fact that you and me cannot see how this could possibly work out for good is irrelevant information. You know the story of Ruth? Do you think anybody's sitting around going, yeah, I think I got this one figured out. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty confident. Yeah, there's going to be this Boaz guy that Naomi doesn't even know exists. He's going to roll into I mean, no one knows that. How did the children of Israel get at the shore of the Red Sea? They're running through the winnow. They're getting pursued by the army. They run all of a sudden, bingo. They come up the Red Sea. Uh Uh-oh. How did they get there? Well, well, this is bad. God led them there. Right there. You think anybody's like, oh, I know what's going to happen. So it's just going to part. We're going across on dry land. Yeah, I I, I got that figured. No. And neither are you going to figure it out. Neither am I. The how is not our business. The who. The who. You focus on the God of the Scripture. You focus on the King of the universe. You focus on Him, not on the how. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for...